This is Max McEwen on Lead Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, uh, I'm Max McEwen. I work, I suppose I spend about a third of my time searching and a third uh, speaking at conferences and then a third uh, actually working with boards of companies and their their senior management teams usually uh, to figure out uh, how they shape the future, which uh, has led to my my research focus on strategy and innovation and uh, adaptability. Well, that's a, a perfect way to outline it because I was about to say, and you, you write a lot on innovation, you write a lot on strategy, and now sort of the new strategy of adaptability. And if, if you didn't believe me, then uh, I can point to, at least in the U.S. side, I can point to two books published in the exact same year, which is rare for uh, books that are as in-depth and research-based as these are. Um, two books published in the same year. The, the first is the strategy book, and the second is adaptability. I, I want to talk first about um, your your book, the strategy book, which is uh, came out early this year, at least in the U.S., and, and I'm really enjoying it. But tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write a book on strategy and what the goal of this particular uh, strategy book is. Uh, actually, this one came because I, about, because I was teaching at uh, Warwick Business School in the U.K., and uh, which is where I did, did my doctoral studies. Uh, and I'd been invited in just to teach a, an MBA class at uh, final strategy module and uh, as I was teaching them they kept asking me for recommendations for text that would be practical and real world and powerful all those things but also not dumb down the models that they were expected to learn and that they had some fondness for or at least respect for even then and uh, I, I found myself struggling a little. I was aware of uh, all the major textbooks, and they all have much to recommend them in terms of content. But you're talking about uh, a thousand pages, more or less, and that's a lot to drag themselves through. And they can end up, because academics are what uh, academics are, they can end up in a position at the end where they know less than they did at the beginning because. The academic's job, in a way, is to make things complicated, to find different ways of saying it. And so you usually start off with those kind of books with a stance that says, strategy is very complicated and nobody knows what it is. Uh, and I, I don't think that's particularly helpful for the entrepreneurs and the leaders and the, the people who are trying to shape their future. But, but then at the same time, there are other books, good in their own way, I suppose, that are so basic uh, and so uh, superficial in their treatment of strategy that they could leave that same leader or entrepreneur really with the inadequate tools, you know, like the cheap version of own brand tools that you get sometimes in home depot or something, that kind of thing. They're going to break off in your hands. Uh, and so I thought I could do better than that and fill a gap perhaps in the middle um, with a guide for improving strategic thinking that wasn't dumbed down. Oh, and I, I think it definitely does that. I, I think you're absolutely right. At least w- what I see from the uh, from the academic side and even into the um, business and competitive strategy side, we tend to 
uh, in an attempt to simplify, we tend to just boil it all down to uh, Michael Porter and positioning, and really not even five forces, just this idea of you can do low cost of differentiation, and that's all we we teach people anymore. And, and what I love about the strategy book is that it encompasses a lot more, uh, a lot bigger perspective uh, of strategy. It looks at a lot of different tools. Um, it, it sort of it, it at least addresses the conflict that I've always noticed between Michael Porter and Henry Mintzberg. Um, I kind of want to get your, your perspective on that. Do you, do you lean more towards a Porter side or to a Mintzberg side? Or wh- where do you lean on this whole strategy, what is strategy debate? Well, you have, we all have to remember that when, when Mintzberg and Porter started off that argument, in fact, Mintzberg's argument wasn't even with Porter at that stage. It was with uh, Antoff, as I remember. And uh, Mintzberg, this uh, bright, um, sort of combative strategy professor from Canada, arguing with this stalwart of this strategic planning field, uh, and he was very good at uh, just poking him, <laughs> just irritating him it's like some somebody's kid brother. And so he was very good at doing that. He published a paper once called, uh, I think, uh, was it Planning Nil uh, Strategy One. But the idea was that, that he understood the real nature of emergent strategy and that even the best plans that don't work. Uh, and so I think that appealed to a huge number of managers in the field who said, yeah, exactly. Uh, I've had enough of it. this planning. It never really comes right. I've got to make it right. The corporate office give me all these uh, detailed spreadsheets to fill in and, and guidelines, but it's really me hustling in the field that makes the difference. And, of course, he's right there. But equally, himself and... Uh, was right about the need for a certain amount of planning, and he he recognised he was an actual manager. Uh, he recognised the difference, and then you got Porter, who really is a, an economist in a sense, and he's right too. <laughs> if you have, you have to make certain decisions. So that's his sort of um, generic strategies. You have to make certain decisions, but then again. Um, planning your competitive position is not something that is as easy, um, straightforward, or as common as he seems to suggest. Uh, he gives an example in his Harvard Business Review article on uh, what is strategy. He gives the example of IKEA, and he says, that, hey, IKEA is this fantastic company that's planned its way to success. But he's describing something that, didn't happen uh, in in the strategy book. I, I described briefly how IKEA came about, and it came about from a series of accidents, essentially, and reactions to those accidents. That every time something would happen, good or bad, like the big warehouse burning down or them not having enough staff to serve people, every time that would happen, they'd react in an intelligent way. And then if what they did worked, they'd then build that into a operating strategy for the future, which is something I talk about. So I think that you can you can use all of these things together. A lot of it is that mixture of, I think I say in the book, reacting matters as much as planning. But the converse is equally true. Planning matters as much as reacting. It's when you combine those two in a creative way 
that uh, entrepreneurs understand that you get the very best results. You know, absolutely. And I love that you brought up the IKEA example because I see it as, uh, uh, one, I think a lot of people like talking about IKEA, but two, I see it as a perfect example of uh, what proves um, the the Porter and Minsberg debate is a little uh, little simplified because they're a company that u- utilized both and really did use a, an emergent strategy. And actually, um, I'll, I'll use them as my shameless transition. They actually sort of you see the elements of adaptability and and uh, the ability to change with the environment in the IKEA story as well. Which brings me to the second book for 2012 for you, um, which is adaptability and this idea that I, I really view it as another. Um, realm of strategy, this idea of being able to react, react well, adapt to your environment, and, and move forward. But talk a little bit about the new book, Adaptability, um, which is just out, uh, and, and what, the, what the aim of that book for, what, what the strategic goal of adaptability is. How's that as a, as a way to phrase it? <laughs> Perfectly. Then. The adaptability originally started off as a, a look at kind of survival rules of strategy, uh, and I was going to write a book about that. And then as I wrote the chapters, it's a, a much more conversational book uh, full of stories uh, compared to the strategy book. And as I started exploring those stories about how organizations had uh, had adapted and had succeeded or, or not, that uh, had failed, I started to find those human stories in there and the individual story would be as important as the organizational, but then equally at a national or at the international level, and there were historic stories, and then there was brain science, and there were so many different strands of it. And I seem to discover this thread of adaptation or adaptive science, all sorts of different areas of study from your, your ecologists, your economists, your psychologists, all interested in this most important of all human traits, uh, our ability to either adapt the situation that we're in to suit ourselves or adapt ourselves to thrive in that environment. That uh, exploration fascinated me, and uh, it hadn't previously been brought together in quite this same way, uh, and I felt that was important to, to do that so that we could celebrate, really, this thing that we do so very well, particularly now in a time of great uncertainty uh, and turmoil. We, we need to understand how to do that and have confidence and uh, hope and faith in our ability to do that again and again and again, because, of course, it's always the beginning with this adaptation thing. No, oh, no, absolutely, and you know that's one of the ironies of the uh, we make uh, throughout history. We've made uh, comparisons to Darwinism, survival of the fittest in business, and it's actually not true. And I'm glad the business realm is actually uh, it, coming across to this. It wasn't really survival of the fittest; it was survival of the most adaptable, uh, and those those species that could adapt and change and move forward. You know, theoretically, were the ones that uh, got to pass on their genes, and we see the same thing in in business. The companies that can adapt and move forward and and uh, change with the rapid pace of change that's going on right now are the ones that are able to move forward, and the ones that cling on to their old old ways are the ones we we never hear about again. Yeah, because because in a sense, I mean, they adapt the success or survival of the fittest. It means the kind of fittingness is <laughs> the. the 
organism or the person or the organization that fits best to its environment. So evolution doesn't care really whether you are the most handsome or the strongest or the worst or the best. In a sense, it doesn't really care about any of that. It doesn't care about the future. It doesn't have a long-term view of anything. It, it's just a it's just a relationship between us and our environment. And whoever fits that environment best, um, unfortunately, that means that if your culture or your society uh, becomes uh, dysfunctional, the person who is the most psychopathic, sociopathic, the most weaselly, the least honest, the most greedy, they can succeed because they fit the environment that they've found. And your society or your organization can really get either teeter close to collapse or what uh, exists in what I describe as a miserable equilibrium where everybody's surviving, but it's pretty awful for most people or certainly not desirable for most people. Uh, and then at the same time, those are two of the levels that I described, at the same time you could sort of head higher up and an organization or a person can find out how to thrive or then even how to transcend the situation that they found themselves in originally. So instead of just staying with the same rules that don't really suit them, they can leave and find an altogether better place. And that, of course, in one sense is what anybody who's ever emigrated does. They leave one thing to find something better equally somebody who leaves uh, a neighborhood that, that, that's not succeeding to go somewhere else, but even more when the individual is sort of clever, creative, committed enough to change the country they're in, to change the neighborhood they're in, to change the, the company or the family or the life that they're in. Now, now in adaptability, I know what, what's funny is there is a uh, there's a set of rules in adaptability, and and one of which is, of course, is is mess with the rules. Or I'll, I'll be I'll keep it PG uh, and and avoid what it's really referred to as, but it is to mess with the rules. But the rules are broken up actually into into three steps that I really like the way um, it's logically laid out. And the three steps are recognize the need to adapt, understand necessary adapt, uh, adaptation and adapt as necessary. Talk a little about each of those three steps and how an organization or a leader can lead a company through uh, this process of adapting? Well, I really tried to, uh, I'm glad you mentioned it because I, I really found this pattern over and over again and went to a great deal of uh, trouble and effort to find the simplest possible way of describing this adaptation process with, with the hope that somebody wants to read to understand in more detail they could but then if somebody wanted to go through a process, as you say, in their, their company or in their life to, to get to some sort of transcendent point to escape, then they could. So the, the first one is, is to recognize the need to adapt. Now, here, all sorts of organizations and people uh, don't even recognize that there's something wrong with the way that things are. And if they don't recognize, they can't do anything about it. They don't really see. They may even see that there's a problem, but they don't see how it's their problem. They don't see that it's particularly urgent. Um, at, or they, they think that mediocrity is the way that things should be. And because they don't recognize the problem, 
they do very little about it. They don't even look for um, a solution or feel bad about the way that things are. And I think all of us have had those kind of experiences, those aha moments, where you just realize there is a better way that this could be done. There's a better way of living or, or, or shopping or whatever the thing is or leading. And you suddenly experience something better or you see the flaws in the way that things are and you think, right, I'm dedicating myself to getting out of here. We've really got to do it. So that, that's the first and very important step. Um, the second, though, is to understand the necessary adaptation. Because a lot of people, even when they recognize the need, something needs to change it. And in the U.S., of course, over the past, I don't know how many decades, but certainly past decade, people are, of all political persuasion have talked about the need for change. Um, but being urgent about change and saying that we have to can still be fairly ineffective because people don't all agree on the change that's necessary or they don't understand the detail of the adaptation needed to get us to that happier uh, place. And so even though everyone's talking, it's urgent, it's urgent, we've got to, we've got to, selling change, it, nothing also happens because they don't really understand what's necessary. Or worse, everybody ma makes a lot of changes uh, all in the wrong direction, sort of double up their efforts uh, in exactly the wrong direction. And then third, even after you've recognized the need to adapt and you've uh, actually understood the necessary adaptation, clearly there are lots of things that could stop you moving on from uh, a sense of inertia. You know, you know you really should move from your house because uh, you really need more room for your kids, but you kind of like the neighborhood and you're thinking about all the efforts packing up. All the effort can stop you wanting to move uh, on and to adapt, uh, or the, there can be a sort of form of denial that comes in and sort of builds that up, or people who simply don't want to go along with you, uh, and you might find it hard to, to influence them. So what I'm trying to do in the, the, the book is both identify these three steps and then give you rules or guidelines along with some, some pretty thought-provoking and, I'd say, inspirational stories give people clues uh, as to how they can get past each of those steps and ultimately get, get to where they want to be in life. Yeah, and there's a lot of great uh, stories of adaptive companies uh, in the book. There's also actually a, a solid bit of references to research. I know the strategy book, uh, which we talked about earlier, is uh, definitely more steeped uh, and, and reads a little bit more towards the traditional academic, and this book is a very story-based. But you do talk for a long time about one idea in particular, which is the idea of game theory, um, its, it's uh, counterpart quantum game theory, and how that all plays into adaptability. To talk a bit about game theory and, and how it how it may or may not be the best uh, ideas for determining how what your adaptive strategy is. Okay, well, well, the people know little, especially I would have thought that your listeners that something of game theory and the the most famous. Uh, it's a branch of mathematics or economics, uh, I guess, which looks at 
what what two or more people will do when competing for resources or what they will do when they have a, a an objective either in common or that they're competing for. So the most famous of those is the prisoner's dilemma. And the prisoner's dilemma says you've got two prisoners, uh, one in one cell and one in the other. I mean, anybody who's watched Law and Order or CSI will kind of recognize this scene. Uh, and if the detectives that are questioning him, and if that prisoner, if either of the prisoners speak up, if just one of them speaks up, then that prisoner is going to go free because he gets to blame uh, his sort of colleague or his partner. But if both of them uh, admit that they did to the, the crime, both of them go to prison. And if neither of them admit to the crime, both of them go free. The problem is in this kind of game that you don't know what your partner in crime is going to do. Even if you're innocent, you don't know what the other person is going to do. So what, what do you do? You bet on them being honest and supporting you and being loyal, or, or do you bet on them being dishonest and disloyal? So this prisoner's dilemma looks at what, what is the best course of uh, action, or what's your best strategy? And a, a whole series of different kind of games have been looked at, looking at whether it's better to collaborate or not better to be honest or loyal or not. And a, a competition was held uh, decades ago. And during that competition, entrants were expected to send in their ideas for how to win this prisoner dilemma. You played it forever. If, you, um, if you're betrayed once, you find out and you get to change the way that you vote, uh, the way that you act next time. And uh, what was surprising is that, that people were really expecting a complicated answer to, to come through and win. But what happened was that a very, very simple answer was put through and, and won the competition. And in the, the sort of um, the simple example, it worked out best, essentially, if you were quite forgiving, uh, if you were willing to uh, do not punish somebody over and over again for what they had done in the past, but that you were equally happy to punish them for what they did immediately before. A really simple sort of uh, way of acting towards somebody else. If they hurt, you hurt them, but don't hold a grudge broadly. And this had suggestions for how we should be in the workplace and then uh, also for, for how we would want to operate in life. The thing is, Dave, you can, go, you can get stuck here. Uh, even so, even if you don't bear the grudge, if somebody's always doing something bad to you and you always do something bad back, you start playing a kind of uh, revenge ping pong or table tennis. You play between the two of you and things get worse and worse and worse. Uh, and in conflicts throughout the world, uh, wherever you have two sides entrenched in their ways, uh, nobody can ever escape. Whether you're talking Israel-Palestine, um, you're talking 
uh, the US and many other countries, um, he, you get stuck. And one of the examples I look at is South Africa, where the, the black population and the white population, essentially, they became so stuck that even though um, the black population is the one that was being oppressed and mistreated and essentially enslaved, um, the white population never seemed to be able to to get out of this very unhelpful game round and round and round. It's going wrong all the time. And even when they know they should change, they recognize they need to change, they just can't do anything to, to let themselves escape this vicious cycle. In fact, they get worse. They bring in worse and worse laws as we go along. And uh, this, then, is the, the field of quantum games, which suggests, uh, I go into more detail in the book, but suggests that if you play, if you go for a move, really creative move that's unexpected, um, that's undeserved almost, that's it. Uh, you can change the nature of the game. And uh, that is, in, in short, that that's what Mandela managed to do. He managed to go with a move from jail that was unexpected by the, the, the opposition and allowed them to change their moves from that point onwards. And I think what's useful here is to underline the, the need for forgiveness, for collaboration, and also for creative moves outside of the norm, for reaching across to the other side, instead of left always hating right and right always disliking left, and so on. How about understanding the other side? Which led, I think, me to write at one point that if you really want to be radical, if you really want to change the way things are, you've got to listen to the other side, listen to the opposition, listen to the enemy, because they will give you the kind of insights you need to change the nature of the game. No, absolutely. And I, I love the lessons for, for from those examples and from the game theory to quantum game theory for leaders, but for also how to deal with uh, an, an age of uncertainty. You know, I think it was Drucker who said the best way to predict the future is to create it. And one of those ways to help change the game is to, to move in unpredictable ways um, and then to collaborate and to continue to adapt. It's a, it's a great series of lessons, and uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with game theory, but I have this morbid fascination with it personally, uh, and maybe I try too hard to make it work into leadership lessons, but I still, I still love it, still think it's a fantastic um, set of theories. And, and set uh, of I, think I, I not agree more. I mean, you, you've got Eric Burns stuff on the games people play from a sort of psychologist point of view or then more amusing things like the, the Neil Strauss book, The Game, which looks at the sort of dating game in effect and how it works. You know, to, and sometimes people misunderstand and think you mean everyone's messing about. And of course, both of us know that we're not. We're just looking at how one person will make a move, another person will respond. Um, Society is really made up of uh, trillions of those kind of game moves. Um, I was thinking with, with what you were saying again with, with uncertainty in in the U.S. in other countries, we're going to come up to elections, and I, I've always liked the way that in democratic countries, particularly, it's those those independents that really make the difference almost all the time. 
independents who are capable of making their own choice and changing the rules, while the left and the right are entrenched in their position. And you get that in organizations um, continually as well. You get people who want to change, people who don't, the marketing guys who want to really sell hard maybe, and the operations guys who just want to do a good job. And you have such entrenched views that these kind of silos, uh, they're always described that way, uh, they, they start up. But it's the independent kind of radicals and the, the free thinkers in the middle who are capable of understanding multiple sides. And then if they're listened to, they can play, make these quantum moves and really change everything for the better. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's, to me... Uh highlights the need for the book and highlights the need to teach people how to change the rules of the game because that's all. Uh, I, I don't remember who said it, but one of my other favorite uh, ideas is that um, a radical, or excuse me, a, a sane person, a rational person tries to adapt the world or tries to adapt himself to fit the world. Therefore, all progress depends on irrational people, people who can adapt, people who can change the rules of the game. Uh, I want to transition a bit from the books uh, to you. Uh, what are you reading right now? Well, uh, I have an Eric Byrne book that I'm reading at the moment, not um, the games people play. This one is um, uh, his guide to psychiatry and psychoanalysis. Um, that's on my that's on my book uh, on my pile of books to read. Um, I'm getting ready for a, a book out next year about leadership, and so I'm reading that. I've got I'm slipping through my desk. I've got the prints on my book on my um, the Machiavelli book on my desk, uh, the Kellerman book on leadership, um, all of those have been so attracting my attention. I don't really read the, the latest books, just the ones that, that grab me. So all of those um, have interested me in the, at the moment. Um, let, let's talk about you for a second. We've got we've got two different books coming out this year. Obviously, you're in the midst of the launch for um, adaptability. But but what's next for you? What's on the horizon? Well, the net it would, on publishing. Uh, not to confuse everyone, who should of course go out and buy these books. But, um, uh, the next book will be specifically about leadership, uh, and will probably fall in between these two in terms of style. Uh, they'll look at simplifying down what we know about leadership, but then also making it, I think, interesting and readable. Uh, I have a long-standing view that, that leadership, it's viewed, if you're somebody who follows, say, Twitter or always leadership, it can be viewed as a, sort of a sacred calling and people assume that anybody who's in a leadership position or being in a leadership position is innately good. Uh, and I want to explore the limits of that, really. Uh, leaders aren't automatically good. You could have a good leader who is ineffective. You'd have a bad uh, leader who was very influential and charismatic. I'm going to look at examples of leaders, uh, both sort of modern day in different sectors and fields, uh, and then also... Uh, several examples through history to come up with a, I have a simple model uh, that, that should explain that, and then also highlight the really fascinating uh, research and insights that we've got coming from behavioral economists and uh, the, uh, the organizational psychologists and so on. 
very much the leadership book for the next year. Although I am out in the, the, I think I'll be in Boston in October and uh, hopefully meet up with some uh, readers of my books out there while I I spend a couple of weeks uh, touring around. Oh, very cool. That's that's exciting. Something to look forward to. The leadership book, something else to look forward to. I don't... uh... Uh, my honest opinion, I don't believe we need more writing on leadership. We need more good writing on leadership, and that's why I'm looking forward to yours. <laughs> I'll, I'll like, try my best. Oh, well, thank you. If, if it's anything like the, pri- the the past two that you've put out, it'll be it'll definitely be worthwhile. In the meantime, though, don't don't wait for the new book to come out. Go ahead and run out and grab the strategy book and adaptability, because uh, even if you're just interested in leadership, they will make you a, a much better leader. Um, there's a lot of facets involved in it, one of which is strategy and one of which is the ability to adapt to yourself and your organization to the environment. So we want to encourage our readers to check both of those out. Uh, Max, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.